Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks in the Move. Corey Johnson here on October 27th with episode number 126. Well, just ahead, did Robinhood hoodwink us all with exaggerated crypto trading numbers right before its IPO? We'll take a look at some new numbers from Robinhood. And Spotify rides, what else? Podcasts to explosive growth. And could a little company in San Diego have a new COVID vaccine and get to market through a trial in Vietnam? Arcturus Therapeutics CEO Joseph Payne joins us tell us that story. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on your favorite smart speaker. I feel like I've been Google giving Google Nest not enough love, Isaac. You could turn to your yeah. Google Nest if you happen to have a Google Nest speaker and say, play the Drill Down podcast and you'll hear our latest show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Line. We've got business stories behind Stocks and Move, and we have the lovely. Oh, my God, you give me oh, my gods already? Here we go. Am I, is this inappropriate in the workplace? Getting there, actually, now that you mention it. Yeah. All right, executive producer Isaac Webster joins us right now, and he better have three of the most important developments in the world of business today, and he better have just three. How about that? Let's see. We'll see. There's only one way to listen to find out. Our listeners can, can do your, your job evaluation right now. Can Isaac <laughs> count to three? All right. Let's start with Daniel Loeb's third point has taken a large stake in Royal Dutch Shell. The activist hedge fund is urging the oil giant to separate into two companies, one with legacy businesses such as refining and another one that houses renewables. Third point is reported to believe that this would help Shell retain and attract investors as many flea stocks seen as environmentally unfriendly. The activist stake is worth well over $500 million, making it one of Shell's largest investors. And all this is according to the Wall Street Journal. Love me some Dan Loeb. Can't wait for those letters to start flying. Oh, yeah. Uh, number two, the U.S. steelmakers are building new mills and raising prices for big customers. The companies see their hot market extending into 2022, uh, which is next year. Steel inventories remain tight as mill outages and transportation bottlenecks have crimped shipments, keeping some steel buyers on edge about acquiring enough supply in the coming months. And finally, uh, McDonald's is raising menu prices as U.S. worker wages climb. The company's same-store sales have surpassed 
pre-pandemic levels as COVID-19 restrictions loosen in all the major markets. And also up wages. Wages at McDonald's have, ris has, have risen at least 10% so far this year at U.S. restaurants. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Spotify. Spotify trades under SPOT. Spot uh, shares rose 8% today, that, but they've fallen 5% over the past 12 months. Well, they shouldn't have because they've reported to, I don't give stock advice, but I like Spotify. We're totally biased. Many of you are probably listening to our show on Spotify. Yeah. Um, Spotify reported a great quarter by my estimation, just in terms of growth, I think by anyone's estimation. I assume that most of the numbers, most of it's because of the Drill Down podcast. Of course, yeah. I can't imagine anything else is going well for them, but monthly active users up 19%, premium subscribers up 19%, ad-supported monthly active users up 19%, revenues up 27%, uh, ad-supported revenues in particular up 75% year-over-year, these all the year-over-year numbers. So really terrific growth across all kinds of categories for this company. Um, uh, even free cash flow, uh, down a little bit, but nearly $100 million in free cash flow. Um, just positive, positive stuff from this company. Uh, and again, they did actually attribute a lot to podcasting. They didn't mention any specific podcasts. I think it was so that I wouldn't blush. But I have to say, Daniel Ek. For I, sure. I think Daniel Ek, the CEO of there, uh, oh, and more, more, uh, more, uh, um, you know, my, my, my bias. I have more bias here. Because Daniel Ek once had a, a concert for uh, reporters that I found myself at with bands like, uh, I don't know, like the like Snoop Dogg was performing and a few others. And even handed out uh, free bottles of tequila to all the reporters in the first few rows. I did not, in fact, take any tequila from the guy. But um, I do think he's an impressive CEO. And, and uh, he's done such a great job with this company. Uh, and you can see it in the numbers. And he really does attribute a lot of what he's doing to podcasting. So listen to um, his notion of, of why podcasting is important and why making, and this is good for any kind of company, why doing things fast helps your business succeed. It also helps your business fail faster so you can get to that success. Here's Daniel Ek. So let's look at podcasting. We started our journey three years ago in podcasting with a catalog of about 185,000 podcasts. And we were really nowhere compared to the largest players in the industry. Today, we have 3.2 million podcasts on the platform, a growth rate of over 1,500%. But despite the fact that we're still a relatively new entrant, previous data indicated we have become the top platform for podcast consumption in 60-plus countries. And now, according to Edison Research and our own internal sources, we recently became the number one podcast platform U.S. listeners use the most. Given the U.S. represents the largest podcast market globally, I think this is quite significant. I am confident to say that we're a leader not only in podcasting, but in the burgeoning audio space on the internet. So why did we succeed this fast? Well, obviously, our content investments have helped a great deal. But it's also another proof point of the impact our platform improvements and product innovations are having on our business overall. And the velocity of shipping matters. So what he went on to say was, and I want, it was long enough, but I don't need to get into it more, but he went on to say that, that they, they do so much so quickly, basically because they know they might screw up. And by doing that, they put themselves in a position to fix those screw-ups quickly, 
to get to the success quickly and that the pace of innovation, the pace of shipping new products, new software updates and so on helps them get to a place where they're going to succeed. And indeed, they also he also said they're going to go on to spend a lot more money on podcasts going forward, uh, both in acquiring content and doing things that make people want to put their podcasts on Spotify, like this podcast. Of course, you can also listen to this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Stitcher, iTunes, iHeart. What? You're rolling oh, your eyes? The list just goes on and on. We're everywhere. Anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can find us. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Rollins. Rollins trades under ROL. Shares fell 10% today, and they fall in 11% in a year. So Rollins is a big company. It's a $17 billion company, still run by the family that founded the business. The two brothers founded a business back in 1945. They are in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, as you mentioned, terrible performance today, really weak for the entire year. You probably know these guys best for their Orkin pest control business. Sure. Any pests in your place? Thankfully, no, but we, Besides uh, your two we spray kids. all the time. Besides your two little kids. <laughs> Besides the guy in the mirror, no. <laughs> well, um, Orkin reported a quarter, or Orkin, Rollins reported a quarter that was, that was weak. They've done a lot of acquisitions. They've done 31 acquisitions in 2020. They did 31 acquisitions in the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, Singapore. And so one of the things that people want to know about this business is what's growing and what are you buying? Because if you're showing 7% growth, which is about what they showed, but it's through companies you acquired, big deal. You're borrowing money to acquire companies. Why can't you grow your business? That's a different kind of business. And one of the things that they would do to show how well the business was going was breakout segments. What was residential revenue? What was commercial revenue? What was termite completions, bait monitoring renewals? What were franchise revenues? What were other revenues? Give us the growth rates for all those. We can understand the business better, which is what this company has always done well. Their interim chief financial officer, Julie Bimmerman, decided to just stop giving those numbers. Didn't explain it. Didn't warn anyone. They get through the conference call and the analysts are like, wait a minute. Where's the, where are all the segment numbers? Where are all the, you know, how are we going to understand if termites better? Is residential growing? Is commercial growing? How, how are we going to understand this business if you won't give us these numbers? When they got to the end of the, of the, uh, the prepared remarks in their conference call and got to the Analyst questions. Analyst Tim Mulrooney from William Blair sounded a little bit dumbfounded. Listen to this exchange between Tim Mulrooney and the interim CFO of Rollins, Julie Bimmerman. I apologize if I missed it, but did you give organic growth by segment in the prepared remarks? No, we did not. We just gave organic on the overall. Long pause. Is it a change in policy for the company now that you won't be providing that? That's been pretty critical in terms of us understanding how the company is performing. Um, at this point with our change, um, we're trying to give you additional clarity by giving a very clean organic and, um, you know, uh, and the acquisition growth number. So we will be staying, you know, for here for now. Staying for here for now. Okay. Uh, okay. That was uh, that is not making analysts happy. That doesn't help Wall Street understand or anyone understand your business. Doesn't help the drill on podcasts understand your business. And uh, I'm sure the sell off in the shares today, in some part, reflected a company not wanting to show where the problems are. Indeed, much like a cockroach. Corey, what is your next drill down? 
Let's look at Robinhood. Robinhood Markets is the actual Ro- name of the company, That's right? right. Robinhood Markets trades under Hood, H-O-O-D. Shares fell 10% today. So Robinhood came out with quarterly earnings, and it showed us a lot. And it showed us some weird stuff. It showed us that they had made some business decisions right before the IPO that really boosted the numbers going into the IPO in the quarter they reported about three or four weeks after their IPO that just fell apart, specifically the trading in Dogecoin. It was a surprise that they picked out of all of the cryptos to trade Dogecoin, which was, you know, seeing a a kind of a crazed moment of trading, particularly with Elon Musk buying it, hyping it, and dumping it. And that led to a lot of trading fueled further by Robinhood allowing its people to trade that among very few other cryptocurrencies um, of the hundreds that they had to choose from. Well, Robinhood, when they announced earnings now, revealing a significant drop in the money they earned from cryptocurrency trading. The the company reported $51 million in crypto transaction-based revenue that's down from 233 million the previous quarter. It's a 78% decline. And mind you, you know, this is this is right after accepting Dogecoin trading in particular, right before the IPO. It it doesn't look good. And it looks like the kind of thing sometimes companies will do when they want to kind of give their stock a little boost um, right before, you know, an IPO. The other issue here is that they've got a lot of stock um, you know, ready to uh, be sold by insiders. Uh, when asked about the conference call, the CEO, um, Vlad Tenev, uh, he didn't have a lot to say specifically about the change. Yeah, uh, yeah, there were millions of new funded accounts that came uh, for cryptocurrencies, you know, particularly Dogecoin in Q2. So certainly it was a meaningful portion of the new accounts in that period. So that was a new account. It was also, of course, a meaningful driver of the business writ large and the stock. And now you have this moment. Isaac, have you ever worked at a company that uh, issues shares to employees and does an IPO or anything like that? Probably haven't. No, I don't think so. No. Um, so one of the things that happens, you know, you see these huge boosts in the stock right before the IPO because there's a limited number of shares available to trade. And if they can get excitement, they can show some really big numbers, uh, big growth, like by adding a new product right before you go public and it starts selling like crazy. The stock go, And there's a limited supply of stock out there. Stock can go nuts. But after, usually after 180 days... Uh, venture capitalists who've invested in the company, early investors in the company, investors who've bought convertible debt that translates into shares, when that, about 180 days after an IPO, some of that stuff becomes unlocked. Insiders can sell, investors can sell, employees can sell, and the number of shares outstanding can jump a lot of question that was put to Robinhood Chief Financial Officer Jason Warnick about what's coming and when, and it starts, these are comments from yesterday, it starts today. You know, as is pretty customary with IPOs, as we all know, uh, we all have to deal with lockup releases and the implications to to float. Uh, so, uh, just kind of at the highest level, we have about 68 million uh, tradable shares um, that are out on the market today. Um, tomorrow, uh, on October 27th, we have uh, half of what we call tranche one of the converts uh, becoming unlocked as well as some shares uh, from uh, employees that unlock according to the lockup schedule. So that's 49 million shares uh, relating to the the shares received on tranche one of the converts and another 13 million shares 
that'll be subject to, you know, training windows, uh, of course, but uh, relating to employees. So, you know, roughly uh, 62 million um, uh, uh, on uh, on tomorrow that will come out. So 68 right now, about 62 coming out uh, tomorrow. Uh, and then fast forward to uh, November 10th. Oh, yeah, and then the other 49 million, so the other half of tranche one shares uh, will begin uh, uh, be be tradable. So that'll be another 49 million. And then you move forward to uh, December 1st, and that's where all shares uh, will be now fully tradable. Yeah, fully tradable means fully sellable. And for anyone who's got a big gain in this thing and might be looking at taking some or all off the table, that hits the market just as they release these earnings um, that were uh, looked like, you know, sort of showed that things were goosed intentionally or not intentionally, but goosed right into the IPO. Um, I think that's, you know, contributing to weakness in the stock, but it also tells you a lot about this business and how this business worked since it is a stock market business. Why not? All right, coming up, we're going to talk to a company that says it's got a new COVID vaccine using a remarkably low dose of uh, vaccine and being tested in Vietnam. Arcturus Therapeutics CEO Joseph Payne joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. Uh, as promised, we have the CEO of Arcturus, joining us right now, Arcturus Therapeutics, um, CEO Joseph Payne. Payne, um, not the king of pain. That one's taken. Just He's a regular of- old Joe Payne, not a mind-numbing <laughs> pain, just a Joe Payne. So, Joe, uh, tell me about Arcturus. Uh, there's a lot of excitement about the possibility of yet another uh, mRNA COVID vaccine. Um, how is this COVID vaccine that you guys are developing different? And what stage of development are you in? Yeah, yeah, it's different because it's it's a next generation messenger RNA technology. Now, a lot of people are familiar with the, the term messenger RNA because most of Americans have been injected with it now. So, so there's a lot of familiarity with the messenger RNA vaccines. But what Arcturus is bringing forward is the next generation technology, which means that it's a much lower dose. Level. Uh, so instead of uh, 30 micrograms or 100 micrograms on the dose level, the amount that's injected is smaller. It's only five micrograms, and that has uh, significant potential benefits and, uh, uh, associated with that lower dose level. Uh, oh, the so. technology, yeah, and, and then the technology has some uh, potential uh, advantages with respect to uh, the different types of immunity. We've improved it's called cellular immunity, which means that it may be a longer-lasting vaccine. So um, where are you in terms of stages of development with this? We're actively engaged in a phase three study. Uh, we've completed phase one and two in multiple countries and uh, phase 3A. And now we're engaged in a phase 3B study in Vietnam. Why Vietnam? Uh, why Vietnam? Great question. Well, uh, Vietnam... Uh, uh, was uh, behind 
uh, other uh, countries with respect to getting their citizens vaccinated because their original strategy, uh, which they were successful originally, was just to have tight border controls right. and to uh, use use that as a method to control and contain the virus. And in the early stages, they were the best in the world at containing and controlling uh, COVID. But then when the Delta variant came online, it, it somehow snuck through the borders and, and it started to uh, develop into a serious health concern. It's a more virulent virus, right? I mean, it is just more, much, much, much more contagious. Yeah, much more contagious. And, and so it, it uh, ushered in a sense of urgency for Vietnam to begin the process of aggressively vaccinating their, their people which included uh, engaging Arcturus to, to transfer our technology over to Hanoi and, and they're building a facility, a state-of-the-art factory in Hanoi uh, to help manufacture our vaccine. And they've also uh, efficiently developed our vaccine through phase one and phase two. And now here we are in phase three uh, in the middle of that. And, and what's your timing with that, do you think? Sorry, yeah, we're on track for an emergency use authorization filing in December. Uh, so that's just around the corner. Uh, we're looking forward. So if let, let's imagine that that works out, and I hope for everyone involved that it does. Right. Um, yeah. uh, wh- where does that put you then for uses elsewhere? Ah, yeah. To rephrase the question, who is going to honor and respect the Ministry of Health in Vietnam? And if they approve it, uh, and it's a great question. We're, we've built a relationship with other South, Southeast Asian countries. Right. Uh, we're, we're conducting a trial actively in Singapore, for example. Uh, but there's 700 million people in Southeast Asia, including uh, countries like Indonesia. There's 300 million people there. So, so what I'm implying is that we're going to take this uh, success in Vietnam and uh, approach countries in the Southeast Asian part of the world, which is a significant chunk of the population. And then also we'll approach charitable organizations likely, such as the WHO. Uh, they provide oversight and approval to 92 plus countries, uh, including developing nations. So, so I think that would be a strategy that we go from there. Uh, and if we, uh, if we partner the vaccine with a global vaccine partner, then then I think we could maybe consider carving a market share in the U.S. and Europe how uh, people have access to this potentially next, you know, this next generation mRNA technology. So, are are you fundamentally competing with uh, Pfizer and uh, Moderna? Well, uh, I'm not putting Johnson at- Johnson in that because it's not an mRNA vaccine, although that's a different discussion. Yeah. Oh, I, I think yes, we are. But in, in reality, it's like we're in the messenger RNA community for sure. Uh, but but we also fully appreciate that we're a one billion dollar company, not a uh, hundred billion dollar company. Yeah. So so we, but but uh, uh, because our vaccine is different, and because uh, we're initially working with Vietnam and Southeast Asia. At least in the early stages, we may not be direct competitors, but in essence, yes, we are. Yeah, I was I was struck by I went through the Johnson Johnson results that came out for the third quarter yesterday, and they talked about um, 
how they were offering it as a night. How well they did five hundred million in sales in a quarter. Exactly five hundred million. I'm always suspicious of numbers that end with lots of zeros, but I'll I'll give it to Johnson and Johnson. They hit exactly five hundred million. Um, they landed the seven forty seven on the aircraft carrier. Uh, the difficult as that is, but they also said that they were immaterial because they're selling them on a nonprofit basis. Presumably, that is not your goal. Uh, correct. Yeah, like uh, our relationship with Vietnam will is designed to be and contracted to be a profitable relationship. Uh, at the same time, because our dose level is so low, imagine the cost of manufacturing our vaccine relative to others. Uh, if, if a dose level is 100 micrograms and our vaccine is 5 micrograms, uh, metaphorically speaking, that's that, you know, one factory can make the same as 20 factories of, a, of another vaccine. So if, if, if there is a significant need, which we believe there still is, yeah, uh, in, in developing nations, uh, there's an extraordinary need right now. Folks that need WHO, for example. There's still a, an extraordinary need to vaccinate for developing nations. Uh, and if that's still there, then having a vaccine with a lower dose level that allows to more efficiently manufacture the vaccine uh, could be, could be a, a strategic and a win-win situation where we can maintain profitability, but uh, help in extraordinary numbers or amount of you say metaphorically, it's a quarter of the production cost. Since I'm no longer a sports writer, I no longer live in the world of metaphors. Um, is it in fact a quarter of the cost to produce it? I'll bet it's not. Uh, no, we, it's it's hard to give an exact comparison because even though our dose level is, is only 5%, it's a considerably smaller dose level. But... but uh, you have to compare what's called economies of scale. So if, if certain uh, companies are making a billion doses and we're only making one million doses, they're making 1,000 fold more. But if, if economies of scale are equivalent, meaning if, if certain factories making 100 million doses and, and our factories making 100 million doses, we're going to be uh, far more efficient because the dose level is... Sure is dramatically lower so that that that's uh, attractive for the cost of goods finance uh, burn rates uh, balance sheet what i mean what is the uh, this has never occurred to me before what is the cost of a good of a vaccine i mean it, it seems to be the raw materials that go into it aren't great i suppose the machines and so on are yeah the most expensive component of a messenger rna vaccine is the messenger rna molecule all the dose levels that are indicated are with respect to that 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 component, the messenger RNA molecule. So when, when people say that they're injecting 100 micrograms or 50 micrograms or 10 or 5 micrograms in our case, it's it's with respect to the actual messenger RNA molecule. What people may not appreciate or understand is that there's several ingredients in addition to the messenger RNA molecule that are involved in the messenger RNA vaccine. And, uh, and these ingredients have their own profile. Uh, they're called lipids. Uh, this messenger RNA molecule is formulated into what's called a nanoparticle, a lipid nanoparticle. It's a sphere, it's a tiny sphere. And all these lipids, these fatty molecules, they protect the messenger RNA as it's being transported to where it needs to be. And in the case of a vaccine, you inject it in the arm, 
you need to transport after it's injected, those particles have to get to and into myocytes, those are muscle cells. So they get inside the muscle cell, and then the messenger RNA takes uh, care of the rest and makes the antigen, and the antigen is what provides the vaccine response, that desired vaccine and immune response. So we're all making the same thing, but if we only require five micrograms, it means that we're injecting not only less mRNA, but very importantly, we're injecting less stuff, yeah. less in ingredients. Uh, and, and some of the uh, allergic responses that people are observing are attributed to a, uh, 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 one of these ingredients. So it makes sense. If you're allergic to uh, uh, bees, for example, Corey, right? And, and you don't know it, but you're going in to get your bee shot and you're allergic and you didn't know about it before this. And then you, you get, there's a difference between 20 and 1, a difference between 100 micrograms and 5 micrograms, right. So that uh, it, it's a difference between you know significant intervention and staff versus a band aid or something like that. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Um, yeah. So all right, so we so we've got this this obviously uh, hugely important date in December to see if you get approval at Vietnam. I would imagine there are other dates you've got to reach in terms or, or targets in terms of um, production levels or approvals in other countries. What's sort of on the horizon beyond December? Oh yeah, I think yeah. Next year is all about uh, making sure we satisfy the needs requirements of Vietnam. Um, and and just for the listeners' information, there's 200 countries in the world. A lot of people may already appreciate that, but there's only 15 countries that have a population of 100 million or more, and Vietnam is one of them. So uh, sometimes I, sometimes people may naively think Vietnam is like Rhode Island. There's not a lot of people there. Uh, Vietnam has over 100 million people, so it's a significant undertaking. It's a significant market. And so we need to address that as our, our, our primary customer, you'll call it. But then uh, beyond that, like I mentioned, I think we'll be focusing on other substantial Southeast Asian markets and working with charitable organizations because of our dose level, it, it, it's the next generation technology. It's been updated against the variant of concern including Alpha and Delta, um, and these, you know, the original vaccines were designed against the original Wuhan variant, sure. the ancestral variant, it's called. So, so you know, having an updated vaccine, a lower dose level, and next generation technology, uh, I think will, will, if successful, will definitely work hard to expand outside of Vietnam and grow uh, our market share, for sure. Joe Payne is the CEO of Arcturus Therapeutics Holdings. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, coming up next on the drill down, we'll have the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot and will tell us a whole lot about Arcturus when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast on your smart speaker. I never use this sound effects. I thought I'd do it right there. Is that bad? No, it's not bad at all. Why not? All right. So go to your smart speaker and say, play the Drill Down podcast. You can hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram 
by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, back with the drill down bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, uh, the test that these guys are going to do for their uh, vaccine, their COVID vaccine in Vietnam, is testing a certain number of people. And it's not a real small number of people, I think, Isaac. Here's that number. 21,000 Vietnamese adults will participate in this phase one, two, three study all, all at once, testing the safety, the immunogenicity, and the efficacy of this uh, COVID uh, shot, COVID vaccine. And they say, like, as, as you heard, he expects it to be done by the end of the year. We'll see how this thing works. Of course, there's a lot more to it, manufacturing, distribution, uh, other comp- uh, countries accepting it. They say they have a potential emergency use authorization, but that's not a certainty either. So lots of uncertainties with this company, but an intriguing one at that. More vaccines, the better, as far as I'm concerned. If they work, sure. Yeah. All right, well, you've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Our editor extraordinaire is Ben Wilson. That dog in the distance is Nikita. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.